Whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Mole Saab Hussein is now leading all the Mujahideen fighting in Kuna province. As Muslims, we have a teaching and understanding about jihad. Fight them so there will be no division and the whole religion will be only Allah's. In Islam, we understand that jihad is obligatory on us for two reasons. Firstly, when the actions of those in power come between a people and the truth and build walls between them, deceiving them and making them live in fear, we fight jihad to destroy that power and then the religion will be for Allah alone. And the second purpose of jihad is to free people from slavery and let them live in freedom. To live under one law that doesn't come from the minds of men, but comes from Allah, the Creator, the King who governs the heavens and the earth. December 8th, 1979. The Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. The Russians were initially invited in by the Afghan government to deal with rising instability in army munitions, and they start crossing the border on December 8th. But on December 26th, Russian troops stormed the presidential palace, killed the country's leader, Hafizullah Amin, and the invitation turns into a full-scale invasion. Later declassified, high-level Russian documents will show that the Russian leadership believed that Hafizullah Amin, who took power in a violent coup from another pro-Soviet leader just two months before, had secret contacts with the U.S. Embassy and was probably a U.S. agent. Further, one document from this month claims that the right-wing Muslim opposition has practically established their control in many provinces using foreign support. It has been commonly believed that the invasion was unprovoked, but the Russians will later be proven largely correct. And in a 1998 interview, former presidential national security advisor under Jimmy, Ray, Jimmy Carter, Zygmunt Brzezinski, will reveal that earlier in the year, Carter authorized the CIA to destabilize the government provoking the Russians to invade. Further CIA covert action in the country actually began in 1978, if not earlier. 
The U.S. and Saudi Arabia will give a huge amount of money, estimates ranging up to $40 billion total for the war, to support the Mujahideen guerrilla fighters opposing the Russians, and a decade-long war ensues. By 1984, a young Saudi from the Saudi bin Laden group, Osama bin Laden, moves to Peshawar, a Pakistani town bordering Afghanistan, and helps run a front organization for the Mujahideen known as the Maktab al-Kidamat, or the Afghan Services Bureau, which funnels money, arms, and fighters from the outside world into the Afghan war. So, who was behind the building of the Afghan Mujahideen Afghan Services Bureau? Abdallah Anas was studying to become an imam in his home country of Algeria when he heeded the call to jihad. We used to watch his film. You know that, that, that actor, uh, Sylvain? Uh, and it was completely advertisement for the jihad of Afghanistan. What you see here are the Mujahideen soldiers. Holy warriors. I was one, one of the formers, uh, the founders of the Services Bureau with Sheikh Abdullah Azam. And uh, in the same uh, late 84, uh, Osama bin Laden joined us as a founder also in the Services Bureau. He was uh, from a rich family uh, and he was able to spend all the expenditure of the office. When you talk about Zawahiri, it's another case. Zawahiri, when he came to Afghanistan, he came with his own idea. The Afghan Services Bureau was created under the tutelship of Abdullah Nas and a Palestinian imam, Abdullah Yusuf Azam. Both men wanted to create a services bureau that would cater to the influx of Arab Mujahideen fighters. Even though they only made up for 10% of the fighting force, it was seen as a useful commodity in the fight against the secular invader. Abdullah Yusuf Azam used to travel inside the United States, in cities like Indianapolis and Arizona. There, he would pledge for donations from large Islamic charities, such as the Muslim Youth Network and the World Taqwa Bank, which would later be found to have connections with Islamic militancy. The United States also felt pressure to back the Mujahideen, knowing full well that many insiders thought that this would be a huge mistake in the long run. Nevertheless, Carter's own national security advisor, Zygmunt Brzezinski, thought otherwise. In fact, he saw a gold mine using the Mujahideen fighters to repel a world power in the Soviet Union. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day, 
because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis would be to make the Soviets bleed for as much and as long By late 1984, Azul Azam, Bin Laden, and Abdullah Nas would create the Maktab al-Kidamat. The organization will become a key node in the private funding network for the Afghan war. The U.S. government will later call it the precursor organization to al-Qaeda. Initially, Azam runs it while Bin Laden had funded it. They create a guest house in Peshawar, Pakistan, to help the foreign volunteers connect with the rebel forces in Afghanistan. Prior to this time, the number of such volunteers is very small, perhaps only several dozen, but the number begins to dramatically expand over the next five years. Donors will include the Saudi Intelligence Agency, the General Intelligence Directorate, the Saudi Red Crescent, the Muslim World League, and private donors, including many Saudi princesses. The Maktab al-Kidamat also has an office in Brooklyn, New York, called the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, which begins fundraising in the United States one year later in 1985. The Refugee Center was already being monitored by the FBI for their longstanding ties to Arab fundamentalists, such as Al-Sayed Nasser, who would later assassinate a rabbi, radical cleric, and founder of the JDL, JTF, Jewish Task Force, Rabbi Mayor Kahana. The Maktab al-Kidamat is Bin Laden's main charity front throughout the decade of the 1980s. Investigative journalist Joe Trento would later write, quote, CIA money was actually funneled to the Mac." since he was recruiting young men to come join the fight in Afghanistan, end quote. Trento will explain that the information comes from a former CIA case officer who actually filed these reports, but cannot be identified because he still works in Afghanistan. Sheikh Abdullah Azam makes repeated trips to the United States throughout 1985 and 1989, building up his Pakistan-based organization, the Maktab al-Kidamat. Branches open all over 30 U.S. cities, including New York City, Scottsdale, Arizona, Detroit, and states such as Oklahoma, Florida, and California. As Yusuf is frequently traveling all over the world with the apparent support and watch of the Central Intelligence Agency, the magazine Slate will later write that, quote, Azam trotted the globe during the 1980s to promote the Afghan Jihad against the Soviets. By the time of his death in 1989, he had recruited approximately 16 to 20,000 Arab Mujahideen fighters from 20 countries to Afghanistan and visited over 50 American cities to advance his cause 
and dispatched acolytes to spread the gospel in 26 U.S. states, not to mention across the Middle East and Europe. And quote, Slate also calls him the Lenin of international jihad, noting that he didn't invent his movement's ideas, but he furthered them and put them into practice around the world. At the time, the United States is still continuing their support, the Afghans fighting the Soviets, and as later he alleges that the CIA supported Azam as part of the effort. Barnett Rubin, a Columbia University professor and senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, will claim that in 1995, sources told him that Azam was enlisted by the CIA to help unite the fractitious Afghan rebel forces. Rubin later claimed that Azam was considered a private asset because of his close connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, Saudi intelligence, and the Muslim World League. But Azam made no secret of his desire for a no-compromise jihad to conquer the entire world. And in 1988, in New Jersey, he will say that, quote, blood and martyrdom are the only way to create a Muslim society, end quote. And he wants to ignite the spark that may one day burn Western interests all over the world. He is frequently accompanied on the U.S. lecture tours by El Sayed Nasser and another Al Keeper Refugee Center member, Clement Rodney Hampton L., both of whom will later be convicted of their attacks inside the United States. The Council on American Islamic Relations Executive Director Nihad Awad is a leader in the Islamic Association for Palestine at this time, and will later say that Azam had arranged his visits to Islamic centers throughout the United States, knowing full well that the agency and other Islamic fundamentalists were traveling along with him, watching him from afar and up close. During the late 1980s, another leading member and founder of Al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, Jamal al-Fadl, also works at the Al-Qaeda Refugee Center in its early days. The Brooklyn office through Al-Fadl helped recruit Arab immigrants and Arab Americans in New York City to go fight in Afghanistan, even after the Soviets withdraw as early as 1989. As many as 200 are sent there from the office, but before they go, the office arranges training in the use of rifles, assault weapons, and handguns, and then helps them get U.S. visas, plane tickets, and contacts. Then they are generally sent to the Maktab al-Kidamat in Peshawar, Pakistan, and then connected to either the radical Afghan faction led by Abdul Rasul Sayaf or the equally radical led by Gulbuddin Hekmatar. The CIA has some murky connections to the Al-Qaeda that has yet to be fully explained, even though many of the documents are classified. Newsweek will later say that the Brooklyn office doubled as a recruiting post for the CIA seeking to steer fresh troops to the Mujahideen through the Pakistan ISI, the intelligence services, fighting in Afghanistan. At the same time, the Brooklyn office is where veterans of Afghan wars arrived in the United States with full passports arranged by the CIA. The New Yorker will later comment that the Brooklyn office was a refugee refugee center for ex and future Mujahideen, in which they said, quote, 
But the highlights for the center's regulars were the inspirational Jihad Lecture Series featuring CIA-sponsored speakers such as Abdullah Yusuf Azam and Omar Abdel Rahman, who is a co-leader of an Egyptian radical sect, the Gamma Islamia. Rahman was imprisoned for his suspected role in the assassination of President Anwar Sadat. He was later released, but he was put on a terrorist watch list. Even though he was on a terrorist watch list, he applied for a U.S. visa in Cairo, Egypt. However, there was a story behind how he applied. As the consular employees in Cairo were not general employees, but were CIA agents acting as Cairo consular employees who approved of Rahman's visa, not once, not twice, but four times. Later, the CIA would deny acknowledging that Rahman was even on a watch list. And later, they retracted their statement stating that they had no idea Rahman was part of Gamma Islamia or even on a terrorist watch list. The more popular lectures were held upstairs in the room near Al Farouk Mosque, which was connected to the Al Keeper Refugee Center, in which a year later, in 1987, the Refugee Center went up the block. Bin Laden's mentor, Abdul Azam, frequently visits and lectures in the area. And in 1988, he tells a rapt crowd of several hundred in Jersey City, blood and martyrdom are the only way to create a Muslim society. However, humanity won't allow us to achieve this objective because all humanity is the enemy of every Muslim. Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri, who is one of the co-leaders of another Egyptian radical sect, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, who was also jailed for his suspected role in the assassination of Anwar Sadat, in which he was brutally tortured. He, too, would leave the country and enter Peshawar and later travel the United States in fundraising ideas. One of his bodyguards was a man named Ali Muhammad. Ali Muhammad, who has his own nefarious background, was seen as a triple agent for the CIA, the FBI, and Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri and Osama bin Laden. Abdul Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh, is closely linked to bin Laden throughout these late 1980s. And in 1990, he moves to New York on another CIA-supported visa and soon dominates the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, in which it was owned by Mustafa Shalabi. Shalabi would later have a falling out with him over how to spend the money they raise and is killed in mysterious circumstances in early 1991, completing Abdul Rahman's takeover of the mosque and the refugee center. Ali Muhammad, while still an instructor at Fort Bragg, frequently spends his weekends traveling to meet with Islamic activists at the al Keeper Refugee Center in Brooklyn. The center is the Brooklyn branch office of the Maktab al-Kinamat, which is the charity front in Pakistan. He frequently stays at the home of El Said Nosser. The FBI in July of 1989 monitors him, teaching Nosser and some of the future members of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing how to shoot weapons. Toward the end of this period, he informs his superiors that he has renewed his, associ his association with Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. 
Muhammad would move to Brooklyn in May of 1990 while keeping a residence in Santa Clara, California. His connections to the Islamic network develops rapidly from this point onward. However, Reagan would announce on December 28, 1985, that the support from the United States would continue in their fight against the Soviet Union. My fellow Americans, today I'd like to talk to you about a matter of vital importance to our country and the world, the struggle for a free Afghanistan. It's been six years since the Soviet Union invaded that nation. Six years of utter hell for the Afghan people who still fight on in the name of the ideals upon which our, upon which our own nation was founded, freedom and independence. To demoralize and defeat the Afghans, the Soviets have unleashed the full force of their modern weaponry. Poison gas has been raised down for the air upon Afghan settlements. Massive attack helicopters have been used against mere villages. Hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians have been injured or killed, and countless tiny mines have been strewn across the countryside to maim and blind Afghan children. Today, Soviet troops inside Afghanistan number nearly 120,000. And in the face of this brutal onslaught, the Afghan people still refuse to surrender is surely a miracle. And in this holiday season of renewed faith in miracles, it is surely fitting for us to honor and pray for those brave men and women. The Soviets understand this. They know that in a sense the battle for Afghanistan has shifted from the mountains of Afghanistan itself to the wider field of world opinion. So it is that the Soviets are prolonging the war and blacking out news about the daily atrocities which they're committing. They're waiting for world attention to slip, for our outrage to wane. Then they believe the support which the free world has been providing to the freedom fighters will dwindle. The Soviets at that point will have effectively cut off the freedom fighters' lifelines, and although the Mujahideen may never surrender, Lakin the Soviets will have achieved indisputable control of the country. An entire nation will have been strangled. My friends, in the name of human freedom, we cannot, we must not, allow that to happen. On February 16, 1989, the Soviets withdraw from Afghanistan the CIA continues to support the Mujahideen because the Soviet allied communist government stays in power in the capital of Kabul. Apparently, the CIA and the Saudi government continue to fund the Mujahideen at least until December of 1990, although it could no longer because the communist government remains in power in Kabul until 1992. The blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, reportedly has been working with the CIA in the 1980s to help the unite the Mujahideen factors fighting against each other. The Village Voice will later report that according to a very high-ranking Egyptian official, Abdul Rahman continues to work with the CIA at the moving to Brooklyn in July of 1990, thus the reason why his U.S. visas were approved. He works closely with the CIA, helping to channel a steady flow of money, men, and guns to Mujahideen bases in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But despite working with the CIA, Abdul Rahman still considers the U.S. the great Satan. It does not try to hide this. In one radio broadcast, he says that Americans are descendants of apes and pigs 
who have been feeding from the dining tables of the Zionists, communists, and colonialists. Matt Steinberg, an expert on Islamic fundamentalism, would later say, quote, long-term goal is to weaken U.S. society and to show Arab rulers that the U.S. is not an invulnerable superpower, end quote. The Egyptian official would later complain, we begged America not to coddle with the Sheikh. Meanwhile, Abdullah Yusuf Azam would leave the United States. But before then, he would speak at a university in Indianapolis, where he would speak upon how the United States itself was not just a superpower to be feared, but a superpower to be antagonized. However, men, as they make their accounts, often disregard the superpower which affects the universe matters return وَيُخَوِّفُونَكَ بِالَّذِينَ مِنْ دُونِهِ قُوَّ الْعُظْمَى وَيُخَوِّفُونَكَ بِالَّذِينَ مِنْ دُونِهِ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلِ اللَّهُ فَمَا لَهُ مِنْ وَمَنْ يَهْدِ اللَّهُ People disregard this issue. And people only hear the Muslims repeating. America and Russia and America and become gods next to Allah. Why? Because Allah cannot be beaten, cannot be defeated. On May 25th, 1989, members of Egyptian terror group Gamma Islamiyah hold a series of secret meetings with U.S. officials at the American Embassy in Cairo. The meetings are initiated by the Gamma Islamiyah, who in turn want to cooperate with the United States because it thinks the U.S. is cooperating with and supporting the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. At the meetings, representatives of the group will tell the United States that one, Al-Gamma Islamiyah has between 150,000 and 200,000 members. Two, one of the representatives at the meeting sat on the Gamma Islamiyah Shura, or Leadership Council, between 1981 and 1988, 
that 11 members of the group Shura are named at the meetings as its operational commander. Three, Al-Gamma Islamiyah thinks highly of Saudi Arabian King Fahd, but believes he should take a stronger line against Iran. However, Abdul Rahman met an Iranian delegation in Pakistan in autumn of 1988. Four, the group will not attack U.S. diplomats. Five, Omar Abdel Rahman travels to the United States yearly and also travels to Great Britain. Six, the group is not a secret and violent as represented by the Egyptian government and has gone undergone a change in thinking, becoming concerned about its radical and violent image. Embassy officials are skeptical about some of the claims as the group's representatives reveal more than the officials think is prudent. One year after the meetings, Omar Abdel Rahman will be issued a U.S. visa by a CIA case officer and moves to the United States of July 1990. On November 24, 1989, Sheikh Abdul Azam is killed by a car bomb in Afghanistan. The killing is never solved. Azam has no shortage of enemies. Suspects include the Mossad, the CIA, the Afghan warlord Gulbuddin Hekmatar, the Pakistan ISI, and Osama bin Laden and Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri. The reason bin Laden is suspected is because he and Azam were increasingly at odds over what approach to take since the Soviet Union had been driven from Afghanistan earlier in the year. In 1998, Mohammed Sadiq Odeh will be arrested and later convicted for a role in the 1998 Africa embassy bombings. He reportedly tells U.S. interrogators that bin Laden personally ordered the killing of Azam because he suspected his former mentor had ties with the CIA. However, it is not known if Odeh was just passing on a rumor. Regardless, in the wake of Azam's death, bin Laden takes sole control of Azam's recruitment and support network the Maktab al-Kidamat, and merges it with al-Qaeda in the Sudan. According to author Richard Labivere, in the year Talat Faoud Qasim of 1990, a leader of the Egyptian militant group, the Gamma Islamia, is living in exile in Denmark and recoups the help of two Algerian militants who are also living in exile in New York. One of them was Kainer Adin Karabain, and the other was Abdullah Anas. In future years, the three of them will coordinate all the requests for volunteers from European countries who want to fight in Bosnia against the Soviets. They will send about 2,000 volunteers to camps in Bosnia near the towns of Zanika and Tuzla. Karabain will directly lead the Tuzla group. In 1991, Kerbain will set up a charity front in Croatia that is a branch of the Maktab al-Kinemat closely tied with al-Qaeda at this point. In 1995, Kasim will be abducted in Croatia by U.S. forces and killed in Egypt. At some point in 1990, the FBI seizes a handwritten list of contacts from a top official of the Al-Kipa Refugee Center in Brooklyn. Little is known about the list, such as when exactly it was seized and why, and what was done with it, or 
whose names were even on it, except that a Texas imam named Moataz al-Halik is on the list. Mention of the list comes from an article about al-Halik. The FBI also seizes a different computerized list of al-Qaeda contacts at some point. It will later be alleged that the CIA repeatedly blocked the FBI's investigations into al kifa as late 1991. On November 5th, 1990, El Said Nasser, trained by Ali Muhammad, who has connections with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and is associated with the Al Farouk Mosque and the Al Kifa Refugee Center assassinates controversial right-wing Zionist leader Rabbi Amara Kahana. Kahana's organization, the Jewish Defense League, was linked to dozens of bombings and is ranked by the FBI as the most lethal domestic militant group in the United States at the time. Nosser is captured shortly thereafter during a police shootout with a male post office clerk. Within hours, overwhelming evidence suggests that the assassination was a wide conspiracy, but the U.S. government would immediately declare that Nocer was a lone government and ignore the evidence suggesting otherwise. Nocer later will be acquitted of Kahani's murder, though he will be convicted of a lesser charge on the gun charge, as investigators continue to ignore most of the evidence in this case, which links to a wider conspiracy involving the Al-Qaeda Refugee Center, the Maktab al-Kidamat, the CIA, the Pakistan ISI, Omar Abdel Rahman, Ali Muhammad, Osama bin Laden, Dr. Ayman al-Sahiri, and the Afghan Services Bureau in Peshawar, Pakistan. Nosser is connected to an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group, though his job at the Al-Qaeda Refugee Center was a portion of Nofer's defense fund would later be paid for by bin Laden, although this will not be discovered until some time later. El Said Nasser himself was not al-Qaeda affiliated, as he never swore bayat, which is loyalty to bin Laden, although al-Qaeda would regularly use Islamic militants and later call them associates. As the U.S. government continues to cover up of a conspiracy in the wake of El Said Nasser's assassination of Rabbi Americana, later that night, the police would arrive at Nasser's house and find a pair of Middle Eastern men named Mahmoud Abalima and Mohammed Salome there. Both men would entertain the conflict against the Soviets in Afghanistan and then relocate to the United States. They are taken in for questioning. Additionally, police collect a total of 47 boxes of evidence from Nosea's house, including thousands of rounds of ammunition, maps and drawings of New York City landmarks, including the World Trade Center, documents in Arabic containing bomb-making formulas, details of an Islamic militant cell, and mentions of the term al-Qaeda, recorded sermons by Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman in which he encourages his followers to destroy the edifices of capitalism, tape-recorded phone conversations of El Said Nasser reporting to Omar Abdel Rahman about paramilitary training and even discussing bomb-making manuals, videotaped talks 
of Ali Muhammad delivered at the John F. Kennedy's Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg, top secret manuals from Fort Bragg. There were even classified documents belonging to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Commander-in-Chief of the Army Central Command. These manuals and documents had clearly come from Ali Muhammad, who completed military service at Fort Bragg. And a detailed and top-secret plan for Operation Bright Star, a special operations training exercise simulating an attack on Balochistan, Pakistan, a part of Pakistan between Afghanistan and the Arabian Sea. Also, within hours, two investigators will connect El Said Nasser with surveillance photos of Ali Muhammad giving weapons training to El Said Nasser, Mahmoud Abilima, Muhammad Salome, and others at a shooting range in Calverton, Long Island, the year before. But ignoring all of this evidence, still later that evening, Joseph Borelli, the New York Police Department's chief detective, will publicly declare the assassination as a work of a lone deranged gunman. He will further state, quote, I'm strongly convinced that he acted alone. He didn't seem to be part of a conspiracy or any terrorist organization, end quote. Later, the 9-11 Congressional Inquiry will later conclude, quote, the New York Police Department and the District Attorney's Office reportedly wanted the appearance of speedy justice and a quick resolution to a volatile situation. By arresting Nocer, they felt they had accomplished both, end quote. Abilima and Salome are released and are only to be later convicted for participating in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Investigators will later find in Nocer's possessions a formula for a bomb almost identical to the one used in the World Trade Center bombing. As one FBI agent will later put it, quote, the fact is that in 1990, myself and my detectives, we had in our office in handcuffs the people who blew up the World Trade Center in 1993. We were told to release them, end quote. The 47 boxes of evidence collected at Nocera's house that evening are stored away, inaccessible to prosecutors and investigators. The documents found will not be translated until after the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Nocera will later be acquitted of Kahani's murder through pressure from numerous Saudi delegates and offices inside the United States. District Attorney Robert Morgenthal, who prosecuted the case, will later speculate that the CIA may have encouraged the FBI not to pursue any other leads. Nocera worked at the Al Keeper Refugee Center, which was closely tied to the CIA's operation, Operation Cyclone, in Afghanistan. A 2006 analysis compiled jointly by U.S. and Croatian intelligence will later reveal that Al-Qaeda began infiltrating the Balkans region even before the start of the Bosnian War in 1992. Kaner Adin Kurbain, a member of the Algerian militants group, the GIA, which is linked to Al-Qaeda, set up a charity front of the Al-Qaeda Refugee Center and the Maktab al-Kinemat. Its Brooklyn, New York branch was tied to the 1993 World Trade Center bombings 
and the CIA. Apparently, the Zagreb branch of the Maktab al-Kidamat is called the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, just like the Brooklyn branch. A Spanish police report will later claim that Kerbane is the head of the Zagreb branch and that the CIA also has links to Zagreb and Kerbane. The analysis will allege that Kerbane used Al-Kifa to infiltrate GIA members into Bosnia. The United States would welcome in many of these former Afghan and Pakistan militants without any restrictions whatsoever. Meanwhile, the CIA would continue watching from afar, watching the Frankenstein monster that they helped to create through the billions and billions of dollars with the help of Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, only to have the Frankenstein monster turn on them inside the United States and abroad. The question is, why was it allowed to exist in the first place? That's the end of this episode. I'm Adam Fitzgerald, your co-host. Have a good evening.